Almighty God, we do ask that you would overshadow us here this morning by your spirit so that we may receive from your word those, those words of instruction and encouragement that you have for us. And I pray that by your spirit, you will take that word and plant it deep within our hearts and souls and our very being so that we may bear fruit for your kingdom so that when you come, Lord Jesus, there will be a harvest of righteousness among us. And so, Lord, we commend ourselves to your love and care and to this time of nourishment through word and sacrament. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. morning. So good to see you all. Uh, Turn with me to our reading from the New Testament, from the letter of James, chapter 5. The letter of James, chapter 5. You'll find pew Bibles there in front of you, or you, of course, can look on your phones. Uh, Or if you're one of those rare creatures who brought a Bible with you, uh, please turn there. When Ashley and I were living in Raleigh, um, we lived next to an apartment complex that had just loads of children. And uh, in the evenings, often these kids would come over to our home to sit on the the front porch or, or to play in the backyard. Or there was even a park. Uh, there's a field of a park in the in behind our backyard, uh, and we would all play there at times. Uh, and this was a group of kids in particular that are at our house often, and they were between the ages of five and eight. Uh, so it was it was a it was a raucousy uh, uh, afternoon most afternoons. But one day, uh, one of these boys, nickname his nickname was Gooby. Uh, his real name was Garvin, uh, but you can already tell he was a character. So he saw me working in some of the, the raised beds I had in our backyard there one, one day, and he comes rushing over, knocking on the fence, and he wants to see what's going on. And so he comes back there, tons of questions. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? What are you doing? You, can, you know what a six-year-old boy is asking when he doesn't have any understanding about what's going on. So he's asking tons of questions, and he seems really keen to pitch in. So I asked him if he wanted to have a little raised bed all his own, and so we took some spare, some scrap lumber, and we tacked it on to one of my raised beds and made a little raised bed for him. And I asked him, I put all the seeds I had, and I said, of all these seeds, which ones would you like to plant? So his eyes fell upon the cantaloupe. And he's like, I love cantaloupe. And I was like, let's plant cantaloupe. So we planted the cantaloupe seed, put it in the ground, covered it up, and he went home that evening. Well, the next afternoon, you can imagine, he comes rushing over, super excited, just full of anticipation, and he wants to see his little raised bed. He wants to see his cantaloupe vine. (laughs) And so I let him in the back door. He comes back there, and then to his chagrin, it looked just as we left it the day before. The ground was still somewhat, you know, disturbed, and he's somewhat sad. And then each day he would come back. And there would be this ever-decreasing level of excitement and matched by an ever-increasing level of frustration that he had because he was hoping that he would come over one day and there would just be this vine magically across the entire backyard full of ripe cantaloupe. You know, what Gooby lacked, what Gooby lacked on that day uh, is the necessary virtue and discipline of patience the necessary virtue and discipline of patience that is so necessary and vital for farming of any sort, whether it's gardening or raising hogs or or whatever it may be, you need patience. You see, Gooby immediately wanted that cantaloupe vine to be sprawling all over the yard. 
He wanted it so badly. He lacked, though, the patience to wait, the patience to tend, the patience to cultivate. And I don't blame that on him. He's only six years old. He needs to learn these things, right? But this is exactly the image of patience as vital and necessary for gardening and farming that James uses in chapter 5, verse 7, to illustrate that that same virtue of patience is vital, just as vital, and just as necessary for the Christian life and for the church as a whole, so that we might produce a harvest of righteousness. This is exactly what James says we are to produce as a church in chapter 3, verse 18. We are to produce a harvest of righteousness so that one day, we're in Advent, when Jesus returns, he would come and gather from among us such a harvest. Look with me there at verse 7 in chapter 5 of the letter of James. James exhorts them as he exhorts us today. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. That's, that's that harvest of righteousness from chapter 3. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. That's, that's being, so he's being patient until it receives the early and late rains. The farmer's being patient until the crop receives the early and late rains. You see, patience is required. Patience is required amid the circumstances of our lives that are beyond our control. Beyond our control. Beyond our ability to fundamentally alter. Anytime you encounter something in your life that's beyond your complete and utter control, you need patience. Which I think each day is about everything we ever encounter. We need patience. And ultimately, that's what frustrated Gooby that day, about four or five years ago. He lacked the ability to force the cantaloupe vine to grow overnight. But that's what he wanted. There was nothing he could have done to bring about what he desired when he desired it. And James is writing to a church, to Christians, who, like Gooby, may have equally wanted Jesus to return right now. When I want it, when I desire it, right now. James is writing to this church, to Christians who are experiencing in that waiting circumstances that call for patience. His use of therefore, the word therefore that you see in your text there, at the beginning of verse 7, clearly connects patience to the abuses, to the abuses described in those preceding verses of chapter 5, and even all the way back to chapter 2, that some in this church had suffered and were suffering at the hands of the rich. So this, is, this, this be patient is connected to the suffering of abuse that some of these Christians are facing. You see, they were facing circumstances beyond their control, beyond their ability to alter, and these circumstances brought them face to face with their limitations, to the limits of their power to ensure their own well-being, to bring about their own flourishing, their own desires when they desired them. And James knew they needed the encouragement of a farmer's example. There's a lot a farmer can do to ensure the conditions are right for growing. But at the end of the day, the farmer knows all too well that he is not all sufficient. So he tills, he sows, he weeds, and he waits patiently for that which he cannot himself bring. He waits for God to send the rain the early and the late rains, as James says. 
The farmer knows that he cannot impose growth upon the land and upon the seeds he sows. He recognizes that there are powers beyond his control that he must simply trust, turn himself over to. He must trust that God will bring the early and the late rains to produce the harvest. So he desires, the harvest he desires, and so he patiently waits. Likewise, James encourages us to set our gaze beyond our own limitations, to look past those circumstances that we can't fundamentally alter that we're experiencing right now, but to look past them. In chapter 5, verse 10, James sets before us the prophets of the Old Testament. He sets them before us as examples of patience amid suffering. Patience amid suffering. And the word James uses here that's translated suffering, it expresses a much wider idea of suffering than that of just mere sickness, though it certainly includes such suffering. This word captures the broad experience of suffering seen in the lives of the prophets. I know you may not go and read through the prophets on a daily basis, but you might encourage you to do that this Advent as you prepare yourself for the coming of the Lord. If you read through that, you will experience men called by God, empowered by God, to suffer. These men faced all sorts of sufferings. Jeremiah suffered opposition and imprisonment, rejection by his own people. Ezekiel suffered bereavement and humiliation. Hosea, the breakdown of his marriage. And Job suffered all of it. All of it. Yet each one, Though imperfectly and though at times faltering, they fixed their hearts on the Lord, whom in the midst of their suffering they came to know more fully, as James reminds us in verse 11, as compassionate and merciful. What a tension that is. That in the midst of their suffering, they come to know Jesus. They come to know God as compassionate and suffering. Neither Job nor James would discount or despise earthly prosperity, which the Lord gave to Job because this too reveals his compassion and mercy. He says as much in verse 10 of chapter 42 of his book. But Job's own word on the matter in chapter 42 verse 5 is this. He's talking to God. I heard of you by the hearing of my ears. In my prosperity... I only knew you from a distance by hearing you, by hearing of you, hearsay. But now my eyes see you. His new knowledge of the Lord gained in the now of his suffering was as vivid as the replacement of hearsay with personal encounter. Ashley and I, we didn't meet over, uh, online through a dating service, but you can imagine what it is to know someone through a profile and then to finally meet them in person through personal encounter. That's what Job is saying. I knew God in my prosperity only by this profile that I could hear about. But in the midst of my suffering, I met God. I saw God. Similarly, it's Hagar. We've heard a lot about her some this fall. In a profound season of suffering and hardship, she flees from oppression on foot as a seven-month pregnant woman. 
And it is in this moment and season of suffering where she encounters God as the one who sees her. And she can say in chapter 16 of the book of Genesis in verse 13, Truly, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. I have seen him who sees me. Here, she says. Don't pass over that word. Here, she says. In the midst of these circumstances that very well speak against God, she encounters God. She encounters him vividly as one who is full of compassion and mercy. You see, James is certainly addressing the present oppression these Christians are suffering, but he is also expanding the scope to include all the circumstances of our lives that are beyond our control and ability to change. Such circumstances call us to a discipline, James says, of patience. To fix our eyes and our hearts beyond circumstances, beyond our insufficiencies, to the one who is truly powerful and utterly sufficient. And so James says, be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You see, Christian patience is firmly fixed on King Jesus. It's not just some abstract concept of patience. This is a very particular type of patience that's firmly rooted in grasping a hold of Jesus, the returning King. For he will return to vindicate those who were oppressed, as these Christians were, to comfort those who suffer, as many of you here have and are, to heal those who are sick, to mend those who are broken, to restore those relationships that have been pulled apart. Indeed, he returns to make all things new, and it's his return. It's that return to do all that good news that patience is rooted to, attached to, fixed upon. And that's why James exhorts us in verse 8, if you have your text open, look there, when he says, you also be patient, Establish your hearts. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He knows that the circumstances that call for patience can so easily produce inconsistency. So easily produce inconsistency in us, a wavering of our hearts, a double-mindedness, which he's already addressed earlier in his book. And he knows that if we waver, And if we fall away, that we will lose or forfeit that harvest of righteousness that Jesus desires to gather up from us when he returns. Think of all those parables about the kingdom of God that Jesus told where he gave talents to certain servants. And he expected a return on his investment when he came back or to the ones where he lent out a vineyard. Jesus is expecting a harvest of righteousness when he comes. And so we must establish our hearts. The word here translated establish is the same word used by Luke, and I love this, in his gospel to communicate Jesus' steely resolve that he he has there in chapter 9 of Luke's gospel, verse 51, when Luke says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
He established his face toward Jerusalem. He made his face firmly set towards the course that he was on to Jerusalem and what lay ahead of him there. And James is saying to us, Christian, Christ church, you likewise must establish your heart with the same steely resolve and determination with which Jesus faced the sufferings of the cross. Because, and this is important, because when he returns, he will be looking for us to have our hearts fixed on the harvest, fixed on the Lord of the harvest, fixed on his return. So much so that our lives do not permit a double mind, a wavering. James exhorts us to fix our hearts on King Jesus. Remember the compassionate and merciful one? On King Jesus and his return. Because we can indeed forfeit that harvest by a failure in true and sustained commitment. Just like a crop can fail if a farmer fails to go out and tend to it and do all the things necessary to ensure as much as is within his power, that harvest. And at this point, you may seem to think that patience is a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of a virtue. Blessed is the one who endures. This is what James says. Blessed is the one who endures. Right? Just blessed. Just, just do it. Just you know, tighten the chin strap. It's only the first quarter, but you're getting pummeled. Knock down every time. Get back out there. There's only three more quarters to go kind of virtue. You can endure. It's okay. You can do all that till Jesus returns. And it would certainly seem like that is what James is saying in part if he ended there in verse 12, but he doesn't end there to our good. Look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Let him sing praises. You see, the only way forward in circumstances that demand from us patient endurance and hearts firmly fixed on Jesus is the way of prayer and song. These are the practices of patience. It is the only way you can endure, be steadfast, be patient in this life as we await King Jesus' return amid the sorrow, amid the suffering, amid the hardship is through prayer and song. Prayer and song. James uses again here that same word for suffering that he did in verse 10, referring to the prophets, to the full gamut of human suffering. Yet James also acknowledges that life has other experiences in store for us as well. And so he asks, is anyone cheerful? Is anyone of a good spirit? Is anyone joyful or happy? And cheerful here means to be in good spirits. It, it does not necessarily mean that life is trouble-free, but one that is buoyant. Buoyant amid all the chaos that might be happening under the water. So here then in these two words, in suffering and cheerful, are all of life's experience. And each of them in turn, and this is important for us, and each of them in turn can easily be the occasion for spiritual upheaval in our lives. 
causing us not to be patient, but to become frustrated. We don't have time to get into this, but this is what James is talking about when he says, don't grumble against one another. Because what happens when we feel all the pressure in life, when we're waiting for something to happen, and we're, being, we're going through moments of suffering, what do we do? We can lash out. We can lash out the people we love the most in the world. You know, Gooby lashed out. He said, I don't want to do this anymore. This is stupid. I don't want to wait. I don't like this. We can all lash out in those moments. So here in these two words, suffering and cheerful, all of life's experiences, because in both of them and everything in between them, they can be occasions for spiritual upheaval. Trouble can give rise to a spirit of frustration and rebellion against God and an abandonment of spiritual practices needed to tend the soil of peace. This is what, this is what James talks about in chapter 3, the soil of peace within our hearts and within this church, necessary for that harvest of righteousness to materialize, to come to fruit. Equally, though, times of ease and affluence can give birth to complacency, laziness, and the assumption that we are able, that we are able of ourselves to cope with life. And in the midst of that, God is forgotten. And when life turns on you, when, and it will, it will at some point, to some degree, you will be crushed because you have forgotten the one who sustains. So James is fully aware of all of this. And his insistence, nevertheless, is that none of these things that pose a danger for us, none of these things should actually move us. Neither suffering nor ease should find us without a suitable Christian response in prayer and song. Prayer and song. Just take one second and reflect upon what we do here each Sunday. We pray a lot and we sing a lot through prayer and song. Engage in these practices. Learn them here and take them into your homes because these are the practices of patience as we await the return of our King this Advent. These two practices of prayer and song, prayer and praise, cover all the experiences of life. And John Calvin nailed it in his commentary on this passage when he said that this means that there is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. There is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. Whether on the one extreme in profound suffering or in the other extreme in profound joy, You see, Christian patience is built on this foundation and this foundation alone, that in waiting for King Jesus' return, we have personal access right now to a God who is for us in all seasons of life. Just as he was for Hagar. Just as he was for Job. Though no one around Job knew it, or could tell, or even Job himself, just as he was for the prophets, just as he was for Israel, just as he is now for you. Both in periods of suffering and trouble and in times of joy, prayer and praise alike acknowledge that he is all sufficient for us. He's all we need. That's not some trite statement. It's a reality. To pray to him is to acknowledge his sovereign power to meet our needs. 
Of course, just like that vine that Gooby planted in its own time, in God's time. That's what frustrates us. Delayed fulfillment. To pray to him is to acknowledge his sovereign power to meet our needs. And to praise is to acknowledge his sovereign power in bringing about the favorable circumstances that cause us cheer. So whether as the source of supply and need or the source of gladness in our joy, God is our sufficiency. Can you say that with me? God is our sufficiency. He is our sufficiency in this life amid all of its mixed seasons from suffering to joy. And because we know that God is our sufficiency for all of life, we can practice patience by obediently praying and singing songs of praise. For it is by these two practices, it's by these two practices that we can hollow, not hollow, but hallow, hallow every pleasure and sanctify each pain. And so our whole lives should be so angled to God, so angled to God that when whatever we encounter in life, when it strikes us, we send it right back to him. We send it to him in prayer or praise to the presence of the God who is compassionate and merciful, who sees you amidst your suffering and joy. And so this Advent, let us learn these practices, dear Christians, dear brothers and sisters here at Christchurch. Let us learn them. You have simple homework today. Pray and sing. Pray and sing. Pray and sing. Let that just reverberate in your mind as you leave here. Pray and sing, for these are the main practices of the Christian life where we respond to both suffering and joy. And in this way, may we wait and long for the coming of our triumphant King. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.